This is Fine Art Insights with Michael Rose. So welcome to the second episode of Fine Art Insights. I want to thank everyone who listened to the first episode and gave me feedback on length and content and things like that. I'm sorry it's been more than the two weeks that I promised. I've been a little busy, but I'm going to sit down today and we'll do a new episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please be sure to subscribe so that you hear uh, every new episode when they come out. And I'll also be posting the new episodes and reminders on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find me on Instagram at Michael Rose Fine Art and on the same at Facebook too. So today we are going to talk about galleries. We're going to talk about commercial galleries specifically and some of the things that go into running a commercial gallery situation and some of what artists can expect when they want to engage with a commercial gallery and get represented by a commercial gallery. So I want to start out by defining what I'm talking about when I say commercial galleries. When I say commercial galleries, what I mean is a business in which a business owner and a staff, potentially assisting that business owner, makes a living by selling works of art to collectors and by taking a commission on those works of art, usually in the range of 50%. Sometimes it can go as high as 60% and even more than that potentially, but primarily most galleries are in a situation where they're charging a 50% commission. What I'm not talking about are art associations, art cooperatives, or nonprofit situations in which artists are you know, paying membership dues or something, or there's some other structure. I'm talking strictly about commercial retail gallery situations in which the owner makes their living by selling works of art. And sometimes there are other services associated with galleries like this. Sometimes they provide art advising services or uh, corporate consulting in terms of building a corporate collection or a private collection. You know, sometimes there are sort of adjacent things that they're doing, but for the most part, they are making their entire income from selling works of art and from charging a commission on those things. And as I sort of go through the sort of basics of a commercial gallery business, I'll also talk a little bit about some some other things that are coming up now that you see commercial galleries doing, and we'll talk about the state of the market for smaller regional and local galleries and how those things are being affected and how the and how the market for for businesses like this is changing pretty rapidly. So first I'm going to start out by talking about the market in which most smaller regional and local galleries retail galleries commercial galleries are operating. And that market is one where there's a a huge amount of competition. And I'm talking primarily about gallery situations in which the majority of the work that the gallery is dealing falls at a retail price point of, let's say, $10,000 and under. Because most smaller sort of regional gallery situations, most of the work that they're dealing is you know in that range, probably under $10,000 for the most part. And there's an enormous amount of competition in that space of, of being sort of on the lower end of the market in terms of price point. Um, there's competition online from venues like Artsy or Saatchi or, or things like that. There's competition in the brick and mortar space, not only from 
competing small local regional galleries, but also from art associations, art festivals, any kind of situation in which artists that are basically at the same price point are selling works of art sort of directly from their studio, studio tours, all of these things are, are competing for for the attention of people who might be buying works of art to add to a residential collection. And even to a certain extent, people who are building sort of larger collections for corporate clientele or, or, or whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. And some of the, some of the issues in this, mar- in this market include also the fact that people who really have money, people who are really in the, in art collecting for investment, let's say, those people tend to be buying works at a much higher price point than even $10,000. They would be buying works sometimes in, in the six-figure area. And if you're somebody who's buying works at the high end, you tend to be buying those works in a major marketplace. That would be, again, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Atlanta, Houston, whatever. Like a big market is typically where you're going to buy works on the higher end. And occasionally those types of collectors would also be buying things at auction. They might be going to art fairs. They might be going to Basel in Switzerland or in Miami or or whatever. But typically those types of people, the people who are buying things for investment, are not typically buying things at a very high volume on the lower end of the market. The lower end of the market tends to be for people who are buying art to support artists they know and to decorate their home or their office or whatever but it tends not to be people who are looking at art as a as an investment for the most part for the most part that tends to be sort of the truth some of the other issues are that the costs of running a small brick and mortar operation have gone up sort of continuously and the amount of customers coming into brick and mortar stores of all kinds has become problematic obviously because of online shopping and all these other reasons also because millennials tend not to purchase stuff but tend to purchase experiences more so so those are just some of the the issues that are underpinning some of the things that are going on in the in the market for smaller commercial gallery situations throughout i think throughout the country but certainly where I'm located in Providence, Rhode Island, and in New England more broadly and in the Northeast, this tends to be, those tend to be some of the issues that people are talking about and thinking about right now in the gallery business. That the market is extremely competitive, number one, that the overhead is extremely expensive, number two, and number three, that there are some serious changes going on in the way people purchase things and in the interest in art. And one of the things that I've heard a lot from artists who have been in the market sort of longer and people who have had a lot of gallery experiences at from the artist's point of view is that selling art was much 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 easier prior to the economic downturn in 2008 and i've heard this anecdote over and over and over again that prior to 2008 you could have a show and do pretty well you could have a gallery and do pretty well and when 2008 came and the market tanked that even though the expectation was maybe that after the market came back, galleries would come back with it, and the and the and the sort of market for regional and local art would come back with it. That didn't materialize. That the market for regional and local art really did not recover in the way a lot of people expected it to. And 
even in a, in a small market like southern New England or, or in the Providence area, if you look back prior to 2008, there were definitely more commercial galleries in operation prior to that than there are now. And and you and you can look back and see those statistics in, in some situations and, and get a sense for how the marketplace has changed. And that for artists who are in this sort of local regional space, I think one of the reasons they're always curious about getting a gallery and, and, and getting represented by a gallery is that there are so few venues to show work. Even though in in a situation like Rhode Island, for instance, it seems like there's a lot of venues um, because there's so many artists in in New England and in the Northeast, they're all competing for spaces in the same venues and competing for the same audience, and there there aren't a whole lot of commercial spaces that are that are fulfilling those needs. So, getting in a little bit to sort of the costs of running a gallery, one of the one of the major costs obviously is the overhead of rent, and and again, you know, using Providence as an example a sort of decent, not even great, but just like a decent retail space in Providence, Rhode Island, and not a huge retail space either, but just like a decent kind of smaller retail space tends to be sort of in the average of, you know, a rent of like $2,000 a month. Uh, and that doesn't include, obviously, utilities for the most part. So if you if you have a gallery with where you need specifically electric, you know, you need your lights on all the time. I was just talking to... Uh, you know, a smaller gallery the other day that said they pay a minimum of $500 a month in electric, just in electric. So let's say between rent and electric, you're paying $2,500 a month and you're taking a 50% commission. That means that just to make rent, you have to sell $5,000 of work a month, which is a that's a pretty high bar for a lot of small galleries. That's And that's just to make rent and just to pay your utilities. That's not to pay for marketing materials. That's not to pay for your website. That's not to pay for your openings. That's not to pay for shipping costs. You know, that's not to pay for anything else. It's just to pay to keep the lights on, to keep the doors open, that you'd have to sell something in the range of $5,000 a month. And a lot of galleries on the on the smaller end, a lot of small local and regional galleries when I've talked to gallery owners and, and gallery directors, what I'm con- pretty consistently hearing from people who work on the lower end of the market is that the median sale price of a lot of the things that they're handling is $1,000 and under for the most part, which is really, I think, surprising to a lot of people that that's the case because I think the the average person walks into a commercial gallery and might see you know, 10 paintings and, and they're all $5,000 and over, but what you really have to look at is, are these things selling? Are, are higher-priced items selling? And if they're not, then really where the gallery is making their money is on, is on lower-priced items, often, again, at, at $1,000 and under. And because we're all competing for the same buyers, that can be really tricky even on the lower end of things. So those are just a couple expenses to think about. It's a really expensive business. You know, it's as expensive as any other brick-and-mortar business to run. And then the idea that there really is no income if you're not if you're not having really serious sales of artwork. There's no... Most galleries are not diversified to the point where they have other sources of income besides the sale of artwork, for the most part. Most real commercial galleries, that is. 
we can talk about something called a, a vanity gallery, which is also sort of a commercial gallery in which artists pay a monthly rental. That's It's not a co-op, but it's a, it's a situation where artists pay a monthly rental fee and then actually pay commission on top of that, which isn't so prevalent now, I think, as it once was, but but is a situation where at least the gallery has some kind of solid income every month. They know what the cash flow is going to be. They know they have, you know, 15 artists who are paying $100 a month, and that sort of underwrites some of what they're doing. But for the most part, most commercial galleries still are using the same strategy of charging 50% commission, and and then, in addition to charging 50% commission, putting a lot of the onus on the artist to... You know, if if an artist is not in the in the city where the show is happening, uh, the shipping costs become the responsibility of the artist. The shipping costs to and from the gallery, there the all the framing costs tend to be the responsibility of the artist now. Where sometimes in the past they weren't necessarily. A lot of small galleries are putting entirely the onus on the artist to even to handle a lot of the marketing, which used to be pretty much the domain of the gallery. Someone sent me a gallery application recently that actually asked the artist how many people were on their mailing list before this gallery would even talk to them about representing them. So so the it's really changed where at one point even smaller local galleries really provided a lot of they were able to provide a lot of services when the market was was stronger for for sort of local uh lower priced regional art. And now because it's so competitive and and it's a tough market to be in galleries are increasingly reducing the services that they offer and increasingly putting a lot of the onus back on the artists that they represent. So what does it mean to be represented by a gallery? And what does it entail to be represented by a gallery? That's one of the big questions that I get from artists. And it can be a complicated question because every gallery is different and the way every gallery operates is different. And representation means different things to different galleries. So just the term representation, I think, has changed a lot, especially recently. And there was a time when saying that you were represented by a gallery meant something very specific. And what it meant and what it still means in some situations, certainly in bigger galleries like Gagosian or Zwerner or Pace, is that all of your sales are handled through a gallery. For most local, smaller-time galleries and for artists with a smaller market, that is not what representation tends to mean anymore, for the most part. People still use that word, but most of the agreements that I know are going on between artists and galleries are not as exclusive as they once were. There was a time, even for smaller galleries locally, that you would have an agreement, and and it, it was really like a contractual agreement, in which all of the artist's sales in a particular either geographic region or even in a particular medium or in a particular price point were handled through one gallery situation. And you would see artists who had maybe five galleries and they'd have a gallery in New York that would handle New York and the New York metro area or New York State or the Northeast. And then they might have a second gallery in Maine or they might have another gallery in Florida or another gallery in California or something like that. And by having multiple galleries, they would establish a a presence that was 
national, but that they would, with each gallery, they would have a, a representation agreement in which all of their sales were, were being funneled through, the, through this gallery. And what that would do is it would create a sort of uh, copacetic relationship in which the, the gallery would, would get 50% of the sales, but that the artist would have the gallery doing all the marketing work, the gallery would be doing all the administration related to sales of the artist's work, and the artist could focus on making work. That is really, for the most part, not the case, certainly when it comes to smaller regional galleries anymore. I mean, I don't know of many galleries that have that, that offer that level of service, number one, that would that would make it possible for an artist to really have a, a strict representation agreement with a gallery. Because now, basically, what most galleries are offering, and when you look at what they offer in their online applications for representation, things like that, is basically all they're offering is space. They're, they're really not offering the same kind of representation that was once more common than it is now. And and what basically you get is you get space. Maybe there's some kind of indication that you would you would receive a solo show once in a while, or you'd be in group shows. But for a lot of smaller galleries that are constantly doing sort of a rotation of their of their stable of artists, they'll have work by twenty people up at the same time, and and they won't necessarily even do solo shows because solo shows sometimes can be less profitable if it's an artist that doesn't have a big market of their own. So, so representation has changed. If you're an artist who's looking to be represented by a gallery, I really always encourage the artists that I talk to to be deeply, number one, critical of, of what a gallery is offering you, and number two, be really, really skeptical of what a gallery is, is saying they can offer you. Because basically, they're going to take 50% of the retail price of your work, and so many galleries now really don't offer very much for 50, for taking 50% of your work. Obviously, they have a lot of overhead, and I, and I as, a, as a gallery manager myself, I have a lot of sympathy for smaller commercial galleries and what they're going through and what they're dealing with. But you really have to be critical of any type of relationship that you're getting into. And so when artists are looking to be represented by a gallery, some of the things they're going to consider are um, what, what kind of a reach does this gallery have? What kind of a market base do they have on their own? What kind of sales do they do? What kind of marketing do they do? What kind of online presence do they have? What kind of social media presence do they have? What's their reputation among artists and also among collectors and people who buy art? Those are just some of the considerations that have to be made about whether a gallery is going to be a good fit for an artist's work. And when an artist approaches a gallery, again, every gallery is different. So every gallery has different rules, different expectations. A lot of galleries have a page on their website that talks about applying to be represented by them or to be uh, in a show there or however they, you know, they put it. And again, so many galleries now have, they, and, and they're very good, they specify very specifically what they're looking for. And the amount of information that a lot of them want now is much more than it once was. It was once that if a gallery felt they had a market for your work, regardless of who you were, 
of course they want to work with professional people, but you didn't necessarily have to have a following on your own because the gallery would provide the following. And now it's it's almost reversed, where galleries are really looking to find artists who have a following of their own that the gallery can mobilize and can and can organize to purchase work. And so, and like I said just recently, an, an artist was telling me about an application they were filling out for a gallery and it was a smaller but very well-respected gallery in the Northeast. And in the application, it asked a number of very specific questions about how big is your mailing list? How many sales have you had recently? And it was asked, and which is really smart on the part of the gallery, I think, because galleries, you know, they have a responsibility to their own bottom line to get involved with artists who are organized and who know these things. But the indication was that if you didn't have a strong mailing list, if you didn't have a strong following on your own, that you would not be considered for representation in this gallery. And, and, and so that's something to consider. That's something to consider for artists. And it's, and, and, so the, and it's a question, too, for artists. If the gallery needs you to do the marketing, then there is a question about the value of the gallery. Basically, then, you're paying 50% to the gallery so that you can have work in a public space. Ultimately, in some cases, in some gallery cases, really when you look and read between the lines, that is essentially what you're getting is, is space because they expect you to do a lot of the marketing. Maybe they're making some some marketing pieces. Maybe they're doing like a postcard or they're maintaining social media presence that you can tap into or something. But really, a lot of these galleries are really relying on the the personalities of the individual artists that they're that they're representing to do a lot of the legwork for them. The other component of of entering into any kind of an agreement with a gallery is that you really, as an artist, always want to get the agreement in some kind of writing. It amazes me how many times I talk to an artist who has a relationship with a gallery and they don't have it in writing. You know, what who's what the obligations are between the parties, you know, who's responsible for what, what the financial obligations are. That's really important to get in writing and and any gallery, any professional gallery should really have a consignment agreement for how long they're going to keep your work in inventory, what the conditions are going to be, insurance, you know, how is your work being insured? and a guarantee that your work will come back to you at a certain point and a guarantee that should the gallery close for instance that there's an apparatus to get your work back should a gallery close because your work is your property not the property of a gallery that's holding it on consignment and that hasn't purchased it outright from you so those are some some real considerations the other consideration is that a lot of galleries in their agreements with artists still have a, a geographic uh, specification about you know, for instance, in a, in a place like Rhode Island, there are some galleries that will make you sign on the dotted line that any sale that occurs in Rhode Island outside of maybe the artist's studio has to be handled through the gallery. And that would mean for a lot of artists that really only have a regional presence and maybe their only market is in a place like Rhode Island, that they would not be allowed to, to show certain types of work at their local art association or, you know, in a show in a public space outside of the gallery, that all sales have to go through the gallery. And, and in, in certain marketplaces, maybe that makes sense. In certain pla- places, maybe it doesn't. But as, again, as an artist, when you're, when you're looking at the type of agreement that you're entering into with a gallery, you really want to be transparent. You want to make sure all your questions are on the table. And you want to make sure that it's an agreement that's fair to you and that gives you the flexibility that you need to do other things. 
because the likelihood that even a, a good gallery, a good smaller gallery, can move enough of an artist's work for it to be worth it for an artist to only have that gallery as representation in their even in their local area is is incredibly in question I think at this point I was talking not that long ago to an artist um who has a a really big presence in the northeast and was talking about a, a gallery that that had represented them and that this gallery basically that they had a pretty intense agreement with this gallery and then the gallery would would basically sell five pieces a year and the pieces were not expensive they were pieces that were at the two thousand dollar price point and less so you figure if the gallery is moving five pieces at two thousand dollars that's ten thousand dollars which means the artist is only getting five thousand dollars out of an agreement that in some ways sort of hobbled them because it made it impossible for them to work with other galleries in that area and it made it impossible for them to show in even non you know commercial gallery settings even in a in a non-profit setting or something it made it really hard for them to do business in that area and this gallery really just wasn't performing the way it should have been or the way they they would expect it to with such an intense agreement between these two parties so that's something also to consider when entering into a representation agreement with a gallery then the other question becomes who is a gallerist and what qualifies someone to own a gallery and what are the stories behind people who manage galleries or who own galleries or who direct galleries when thinking about the type of people who own galleries and run galleries smaller commercial galleries it's really important to remember that the gallery business, the art business in general, is an unregulated, for the most part, an unregulated industry. And certainly smaller local galleries are, are in many ways unregulated. And in some ways, that's a good thing because there is a level of flexibility and, and there, there aren't strict rules about how to do things. But in the other sense, it makes it possible for people with a whole range of backgrounds to, you know, hang out a sign and call themselves an art gallery owner or, you know, the the really overused term of curator or director or whatever. And if you really go and look at the gallery website and read the bio of the person who's the gallery director, I've read many where the where the person who's the gallery owner and the gallery director really has no special expertise in the art market or in any kind of, you know, specific background with the the type of work they're dealing. And oftentimes the people who own galleries are people who, number one, have the income to make it possible that they don't necessarily need to make money from the gallery. And number two are people who are interested in art and want to support artists in their own way, but but also don't necessarily have the expertise that would lend itself to really knowing what's going on in, in, in that part of the in that part of the market necessarily. And I always encourage artists to really look deeply at, at who owns the gallery that they're looking at, who who's the gallery director, who's gonna be responsible for their work at this gallery. Because there are plenty of people out there who have, you know, who own Jane Q. Public Gallery, and this is a person who, you know, doesn't really have any educational background in the visual arts, and may not have sort of the network that's necessary 
to have a really successful gallery situation. And that's something that's that's sort of interesting and and it doesn't necessarily happen in every field. I think specifically in the arts, you see a lot of people who call themselves art professionals who really have no, I mean, no educational background in the visual arts of any kind uh, and come into the arts from other industries and, and see the arts as a place where they can make money, which is, which is kind of funny. I mean, if you're, if you're anybody who's working in the arts, you, you know that that's probably not the case for most people. Um, but it is the case for some people who own, who own galleries. So when looking at who owns a gallery or, or, or what, a, what a gallerist is or what a gallerist should be, I think it's really important that people, again, be critical and be considerate of what type of person they want to work with. As an artist, you probably want to work with someone who knows something about different types of media, that knows something about the art market, and that has a network of people around them that are interested in purchasing works of art. And again, because it's because it's so competitive on the local and regional level, it's not always easy to determine if, if someone has a really good you know, network around them of people who are actually purchasing works of art, or if they're just good at, at the public relations side of things. And, and I've known of a number of galleries in which the gallery, and, and we've had a number of them locally in, in southern New England, where they were getting lots of press and getting national press even for some of the shows they were doing and doing really avant-garde shows and then closed because even though the owners may have had a a real interest in art and maybe an interest in showing art that was avant-garde that would catch the eye of of art publications they really didn't have any connections with people who were interested in purchasing works of art and so that's that's definitely something to consider so what would i call a sort of qualified professional, if you want to use that term, when it comes to gallery work. I really think that it's important for people who who own galleries and who run galleries and call themselves gallery professionals to have some kind of education in the visual arts. I really think that's important. And the reason I think that's important is because Oftentimes, I think the arts are seen as a place where if you're an amateur, you can have a career in the arts, and that's fine, and I think that's, you know, there is a place for that, but when you are out there representing artists, I really think it's important that you have some level of education about studio practice, about how artists make work, and also about art history to a certain extent, I think that's important, and certainly about the art market. It it amazes me sometimes having conversations or, or, hearing, or hearing a certain you know certain gallery directors speak publicly about about the market for art and it seems sort of dislocated from some of the realities that I personally have experienced and that I know are are the reality for a lot of the artists that I work with and and it's interesting that I think it's sort of indicative of of people who aren't necessarily totally in touch with with some of the realities of what's going on in the marketplace and and if you're an artist who again is giving 50% commission to a gallery, it's important for the gallerist to know what's going on and to have connections and to have an expertise in what they're doing and to present themselves in a professional way. There are plenty of situations where you walk into a gallery, and this isn't just a New York thing, I don't think, but you walk into a gallery and whoever's working at the desk isn't necessarily all that welcoming. I think galleries have a real reputation for being sort of icy kind of places to walk into. Certainly, 
certainly in New York City, obviously, and in other in other big markets, but also in smaller markets. I've walked into small galleries and and either not had any kind of a greeting from the people who were working there or had kind of an icy, you know, greeting from the people who were working there. And I don't think that's uncommon. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of people feel really uncomfortable walking into a commercial gallery. The vast majority of of sort of middle-class people in the United States, certainly, will probably never in their lifetime walk into a commercial gallery. And the reasons for that are many, I think. The, the reasons for that are, the foundational reason is, is an interest issue, but the other reasons are that I think a lot of galleries don't make it entirely welcoming for people to be there. And, and, and that's something that ultimately falls in the lap of whoever owns the gallery. And the culture of an individual gallery is the responsibility of the, of the owner, of the director, and it falls down to other staff members. And it's also important to remember that the majority of smaller galleries, the majority of smaller galleries, local galleries and regional galleries, typically have one staff member. That, I think that's a really important note to make for people, that... I think a lot of people don't expect because maybe sometimes you see an intern at a desk or something like that. But the majority of smaller galleries have a one paid staff member and it's the director and the owner. And so it really is important to know who the director is and to have a sense of what their background is and a sense of what their qualifications are before working with them. And what are what are some of the things besides education that you can look for? Another really important factor is to work with somebody who's trustworthy, to work with somebody who is going to represent your work in the best possible light, to work with someone who is is going to support the work that you're doing and and is going to be honest with you about its marketability and is going to be honest with you about the type of clientele that are coming in to their space and the type of clientele that they can connect you with. And and to work with someone who is not going to take advantage of you or um, or undermine your artistic practice and what they're doing. I think that's really, really important. And I think it's incredible the amount of times I've seen artists get into relationships with galleries where the gallery owner isn't necessarily being forthright with them or isn't necessarily representing their work in the best possible way. And one situation that arises a lot is people who get in, you know, quote unquote, to the stable of the gallery. They're in the, you know, 20 or 30 artists that this gallery might represent but their artwork is not really ever on view. It's sort of in the back room, and the and the gallery owner's focusing on, on representing other people and, and representing top-selling sort of artists and not representing all the artists equally. Um, but ultimately, I think it's important to, again, I think having things in writing is helpful, but having an open conversation with whoever you're working with, whoever the gallerist is, or whoever the art dealer is, and really having a mutual understanding of what's beneficial for both of you, and what you both hope to get out of of this relationship. And the other thing is to understand what the gallerist's vision is for their business, and, and how you fit into that, and also have an understanding of some of the other things that are going on in galleries right now besides you know the old-fashioned representation situation or 50 percent commission and there are other things going on i think one of the really interesting things to think about is the amount of commercial gallery owners who are now running paid juried opportunities in commercial gallery settings which was sort of unheard of even a few years ago and now you see all these commercial gallery spaces that are running paid juried shows 
and 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 that's something you can think about and that we can talk about and explore a little bit in order to better understand some of the market issues we talked about but also to understand sort of what the future of galleries is so i think that one of the most interesting things going on right now in commercial galleries is the prevalence of paid juried exhibitions entering into commercial gallery spaces and when i say paid jury shows i mean shows in which artists pay an entry fee and this ranges you know i've seen ones that are as low as ten dollars and i've seen ones that are as expensive as fifty dollars to enter a piece into a usually like a themed juried show and and the way that these are run in galleries sometimes you know it ranges sometimes they have an outside juror or a you might use the word curator it's not really curation but it's someone who's selecting basically the work out of the pool of applicants to add to this show sometimes galleries have an outside juror do this sometimes though the juror is basically just the gallery director doing it and and it is interesting to see these kinds of shows in a commercial setting because juried shows are really common in nonprofit organizations or in arts associations collaboratives and I think the reason they're, they were common in, in nonprofit situations, and I run a really large juried show at the Providence Art Club where I work, I think one of the reasons they've been popular is because they give non-member artists, in, in sort of a member situation, they give non-member artists the opportunity to show in really high-quality, member-driven gallery situations. I think that's why you see them in a, in a nonprofit or in a member-based organization. And... And typically, in a nonprofit situation, there are prizes involved, and 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 pretty much always the juror is an outside person. It, they they bring in sort of a notable outside person to select work for the show at the Providence Art Club, for instance. We in the past have had the the director of or the or the the head of the American Wing at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston was a juror for us one year. Another year, it was the chief curator from the National Museum for the Women in the Arts. So, so you see sort of a, a level of, of quality of juror, and then there are prizes involved. Again, at the, just as an example, at the Providence Art Club, we'll do $5,000 in prizes at different levels. So there's you know top prizes and smaller prizes that can recognize specific works. And then, and then artists who get in get to exhibit in the gallery. So there, there's sort of a range of, of things that you get for, for getting into these shows. Primarily... In commercial galleries where these juried shows are happening, at least the, the juried shows that I've followed and that I've seen happening in, in commercial gallery situations around the United States, I have not seen many where prizes are offered, and I have not seen a ton where the juror is someone other than the gallery owner. And I think what's interesting is I think these are attractive opportunities for artists because I think artists will apply to shows in a commercial setting and they and because it gets them in front of the gallery owner and there there is the potential that that a gallery owner might might see someone in one of these juried show opportunities they're doing and then add that person to their roster or, or represent that person in some other way i think that's that's one possibility but i think when you look at it from the gallery side and you ask yourself why is a commercial gallery running a paid juried opportunity in which there are no prizes of any kind and in which they are not you know paying an honorarium to a to an outside juror 
I think that is where I get a little skeptical of, of these opportunities that are showing up more and more and more in commercial galleries. And I think basically what these, what these juried opportunities are is, yes, it's a way for a gallery owner to show their interest in, in artists who aren't necessarily on the roster, yes. And I think it's an opportunity for a gallery owner to learn more about different, type of, different types of artists who are out there. But I also think it's a money-making opportunity for a lot of these galleries. Like, and, and I don't think that's the fundamental reason that many galleries are doing it. I don't, wanna, I don't want to sound too skeptical of, of these opportunities showing up in, in for-profit gallery situations. But I, I think it's very different when a, when a for-profit business is running these sorts of, of juried opportunities than it is when a, a non-profit you know, member-based arts organization is running them in order to provide broader opportunities to, to artists who not, might not necessarily be members. And, and again, I mean, I'm intimately aware of how, of how jury shows run and, 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 and what the situation is. And I'm watching this new thing of jury shows in commercial settings with a lot of interest because I think it is interesting. And I spoke to a little bit earlier that if you're a commercial gallery, you, you, if you're not, if you're not having success in your regular sales, there aren't a lot of opportunities to build in a sustainable cash flow for your business outside of selling works of art by your stable of artists. And it is interesting to see this jury show thing developing as a way, I think, that a lot of commercial galleries are beginning to turn to this because, yes, it allows them to meet new artists. Yes, it allows them to focus on a specific theme or to show off artists in their region or whatever. There are some, you know, you know, some obvious reasons why they'd be doing this. But the other obvious huge benefit to a to a commercial gallery is that if you charge people, you know, twenty five, thirty, fifty dollars a head or per piece or whatever you're charging, and you're not giving them anything for for their entry, you know, there's no prizes, there's no outside juror. What you're basically doing is you're you're making a direct certain level of income off of off of a juried opportunity like that. And and that's not to say there aren't benefits to the artists. And that's not I'm not and again not I'm not trying to be critical of galleries who are doing this, but I think looking at it from that perspective is interesting because it's a it's a whole new way of doing business for commercial galleries that once were really, really focused on building the individual markets of the artists that they represented. And I think now especially because the market is so uncertain on the lower end and local and and small galleries are trying to find ways to diversify their offerings in order to build basically a sustainable business for themselves. You see these these juried show things cropping up or competitions or whatever you want to call them. You see them cropping up more. And again, I, I really do think it's different in a commercial setting than it is in, you know, a national competition to be in, you know, one of these publications or something because the the benefits are very different. The benefits of being in a in a national competition are that you get the reach of a national organization, that there's the opportunity for prizes obviously and that you're getting your work in front of a notable curator or notable artist or whatever, you know, that that's typically who the juror is. The opportunities when it comes to exhibiting in a juried show in a commercial gallery setting are that you're basically getting your work in front of the the gallery owner and potentially the audience of the gallery, but it's 
in, on on the regional level, you know, the, the the reach of a small retail gallery that you know on Main Street wherever is probably less than the reach of a larger, you know, nonprofit arts organization that has a pretty big following. And, and, and so those have to be weighed when artists are when artists are applying to to jury shows. I do think that there is absolutely a place for jury shows. And like I said earlier, you know, a lot of a lot of commercial gallery spaces have closed. A lot of nonprofit gallery spaces have either you know changed their program or, or left, you know, their headquarters or whatever. And and so I think that these juried shows are going to provide sort of a different opportunity, and and and, and I think juried shows are, are going to be the future for a lot of organizations, just because of changes in the way galleries do business and, and in overhead and all these different things that that I've mentioned. But 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 I would encourage people to really follow the way they're being used in in regional commercial gallery settings because I think it's really interesting. I do, and again I don't necessarily think it's a it's a bad thing but I think it's interesting and I think it's something that like everything I think artists have to approach with a level of caution and with a level of skepticism about you know what is the benefit to the artist what is the benefit to the artist versus the expense of applying and 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 all those sorts of things and thinking about jury shows as one aspect of something new and unusual that's going on in commercial galleries the other thing that we have to consider is what is the future of smaller commercial galleries and and how are they going to fare going forward and i think this is a big question that a lot of people are asking i think you're seeing a lot of smaller galleries even in new york going under because they can't afford the rent and and people are moving to sort of different platforms or or whatever in order to continue to represent artists but represent them in a way that's more sustainable and that has a lower overhead and so what is the future of galleries and what are some of the things that we might see going forward in galleries? I think that when it comes to the future of galleries, especially smaller local galleries like the ones I've been talking about primarily, and not necessarily big, big operations like an international gallery like Gagosian or Pace or whatever you want to think about, I think the future for the smaller regional gallery in a retail space on Main Street, or however you want to envision that, I think there's a big question about what the future of galleries like that are going to be. Because of all the reasons that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, changes in the marketplace, rising overhead, and a generation of people coming up who haven't shown a, a real dedicated interest in collecting work like that. And certainly I think, you know, the market for contemporary and the market for the upper end of the market is very strong to a certain extent, but the market for regional things, for local work, has its pitfalls, naturally. And and I think we don't really know what the future is going to look like yet, but I do think that the future is going to include a lot of gallery models that we don't yet understand and that we don't yet necessarily expect to be what the future is, I think you're going to see a lot more of the paid juried opportunities in commercial galleries to sort of stabilize cash flow. I think you're also going to see a lot of situations in which commercial galleries are going to begin running paid events. I think you're you're not going to see so much of the 
uh, old-fashioned, you know, free opening reception cheese and wine thing as you used to, I think you're going to see a lot of galleries that turn to doing specialty paid programming, not only so that the programming pays for itself, but also to build in some kind of, you know, steady cash flow. And for some galleries, this is going to mean doing like paid cash bars at openings, which never used to be a thing, but what you see, that's something that you see coming up now and doing really sort of specialty events. Another sort of suggestion has been having just regular people, you know, either pay some kind of a membership to a, to a local, you know, for-profit gallery. And, and again, the idea being that it would underwrite what the gallery does because the, because the market for, for regional art tends to be, you know, more uncertain and to some extent a softer market than the market for really big name blue chip contemporary artists in big cities. And, and, and those are just some things that, that are coming or might come. And, and the other thing is that I think you're going to see a lot of galleries turning into more online operations. You're going to see a lot of galleries who might not keep a storefront space or a really extravagant gallery space and who might turn more into online brokerages of art by local and regional artists. And and I've seen that happen with a few galleries who have, you know, turned towards towards more online. And and you're gonna see galleries having to. I mean, I don't think there's gonna be much of a choice having to move away from having big physical presences and doing you know, big mailings and, and, and some of the old-fashioned sort of marketing things that galleries used to do, too. And, 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 I, and so I look at the future of galleries with, with sort of a, a two-sided view. I think galleries are the best place to see work. I think the idea that you can experience work in a virtual way the same way you can in a, in a gallery by looking at it up front in front of it, I think is really, I think that's flawed. I think most people who are in the arts think that's a flawed way of looking at it, that that the virtual can replace in-person looking because artwork has texture, it has uh, surface, it has all these qualities that while they can be really well reproduced in digital images, they can't entirely be reproduced. And the experience of scale and of space and of distance and of all these um, sort of indescribable qualities of looking at art in person cannot be reproduced. Even in, you know, like Google Arts and Culture, where you can zoom in to to see a centimeter of a Franz Halls painting or something, that's wonderful and that's great if you can't get to see something in person. But if there's an opportunity to see something in person, even artwork by somebody who's from your city or from your region, then I think everybody should have the opportunity to see things in person. And ultimately, commercial galleries, even though we have a very flawed commercial gallery system, provide an incredible service by typically being free for the most part, and you don't have to buy art to go and look at art in a commercial gallery setting. Um, but the future of you know basically the viability of the business model is very much in question. And, and how are galleries going to deal with that, I think is a big question going forward. And I think the way that galleries are going to interact with the world is going to have to change. I think galleries are going to have to become less icy, less stuffy. They're going to have to be more friendly. They're going to have to run more programs. They're going to have to engage with 
with a generation of people who don't necessarily want to buy things but want to buy experiences and want to buy sort of opportunities and maybe education or something like that and i think ultimately if commercial galleries are going to be viable you're gonna you're gonna see some serious changes in the way they do business and 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 that's the same as the changes that we've seen just in terms of the way representation has changed. You know, at one time you would have a really strict representation agreement. Now you see more porous representation agreements. And going forward, I think you're going to see even more sort of casual representation going on in galleries. And you're going to see people who have a one-off show and then never show with that gallery again. Or, or you're going to see galleries really diversifying their stable of artists in ways that we might not have seen before. So those are just some considerations for, for what the future holds. And... And so this this conversation has been a, a very general overview of what's going on in galleries right now. And again, what I'm talking about are commercial galleries and primarily on the local and regional level, not necessarily big name galleries, you know, big blue chip galleries that have multiple locations in Hong Kong and Berlin and New York. They are working on a different level and they have huge staffs and for the most part, they're doing quite well. Um, but their business is changing too. But I think the galleries that are really vulnerable are your local gallery that's owned by the director and that has one or two staff members and that's trying to build a model that works in which they can represent artists from their community, but in which they also can make a living and can pay the rent and can pay for electric and can do all those things, those basic things. And while it's a it, it's sort of a frightening time, I think, in the gallery business and in, in, in that in that part of the market. I think it's also a time of a lot of opportunity. I think it's a time for where there's a lot of experimentation going on and there's a lot of questioning of what can we do better as gallery professionals and how can we better serve um, a broader community but also better connect with people who want to be patrons and who want to purchase works of art and want to build collections of, of people who live in their communities and live in, in their region. I think those are, those are just some of the things that are going on. So hopefully that was a good short overview and of, of what's going on in galleries. Um, you'll notice this episode's a little bit longer than last time because I had a few people ask me to, to add some length to the episodes. So hopefully you didn't mind listening to me go on a little beyond what I did last time. Uh, I'm not sure what I'll talk about next time. If you have suggestions for what you'd like me to talk about next time, I hope you'll send them to me. Uh, you can send them to me on Instagram at michaelrosefineart. Or you can um, find a contact link on my website, michaelrosefineart.com, and you can send them to me there. And again, if you haven't yet and you have enjoyed the first two episodes, I hope you will subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so that you can keep hearing me. And I hope to be back in a couple weeks, but again, it might go over because I have other stuff going on. Um, and I just wanted to thank you to thank you for listening again. So thanks. Thank you for listening to Fine Art Insights with Michael Rose.